Good morning. Well, we've got a low number here, but there's still a lot of folks recovering or coming back from their vacations. So, and school being out, I hope everyone had a good week. Um, so, announcements. I'm just going to point you to those announcements there. Um, first one that were, is listed there. Charles wants to talk about that. It's the Johns River Valley Camp. So, I'm going to let Charles, let you make that announcement. Okay, and then we'll have some more that you can take with you next week. Um, just a reminder of the baby shower that's coming up in two weeks. We're getting everything uh, completed to get ready to celebrate that. Uh, Jessica has an announcement. And then the information of the Young at Heart and what we're doing for May, you can read that. Are there any other announcements there? Good to see everybody. Uh, we're now going to go to our uh, praise scripture this morning, which is Psalm 75. We thank you, O God. We give thanks because you are near. People everywhere tell of your wonderful deeds. God says, at the time I have Planned, I will bring justice against the wicked. When the earth quakes and its people live in turmoil, I am the one who keeps its foundations firm. I warned the proud, stop your boasting. I told the wicked, don't raise your fist. Don't raise your fist in defiance at the heavens or speak with such arrogance. For no one on earth, from east or west, or even from the wilderness, should rise in defiant fist. It is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine wine in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. But as for me, I will always proclaim what God has done. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. For God says, I will break the strength of the wicked, but I will increase the power of the godly. <clears throat> okay, so now we're going to go to our uh, first song, uh, hymn number 111. So if you'll stand, we will sing when glory gilds the sky.
now we'll confess our faith with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended in heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the direction of the body, and the life everlasting. come forward. Those are some pretty dresses. Charlie, you don't look too bad either. <laughs> so, what do you think of when you think of a battle? It's interesting. Yes, battles are interesting. Do you think of soldiers and warriors, maybe? What, what do warriors and soldiers have to fight in the battle? Okay, soldiers kill people sometimes, yeah, when they, when they need to. But what, what do they take into battle with them? Guns. Guns or other weapons, right? Yeah. Shields. So, did you know that the Bible actually calls us, as believers, calls us warriors of a, of a type? We are kind of warriors. What do you think that we as Christians fight against in battle? I said, if I said, Charlie, you're going to go out, the, out those doors and you're going to fight in a battle, who are you fighting against? And don't say Hudson. So as, as Christians, we are called to fight a battle with sin. You know what sin is? Sin is things that we do that dishonor or disobey what God has has commanded us to do. And so every time we sin, every time we, we tell a lie or we cheat or we get angry, those, those things are sins and they, they go against what God has commanded us to do. And God, in the passage we're talking about in Romans today, Paul tells us and encourages us as believers to fight in the battle against sin. And so just as soldiers and, and warriors have weapons for battle, what do you think that our, our weapon as Christians is? It's, I'll give you a hint. What's that? Swords. One particular sword. 
And it's not a sword that you might think it is. This is our sword. Good job, Charlie. This is called the sword of the Spirit. And it is with this book, with the promises that God has given us in this book, that we fight in the battle against sin. And so one of the things that we have to to know in order to do that is we have to know what the Bible says. And so we have to read it and we have to study it. We have to to know what God teaches us and commands us to, to know and do and be. And with these promises, we fight sin. And sin is defeated in the cross. And because of Jesus, we have victory over sin. Make sense? Yes? No? Maybe? Maybe. I'll take a maybe. All right, let me pray for you. God, we're thankful for these young ones, thankful for their, their presence here with your people. And, and as we gather in worship, as we continue in worship, God, I pray that you would equip them with the sword of the Spirit, that they would grow up knowing your word and trusting it and wielding it and believing it, and that by your grace and through your Spirit, you would give them your word write it on their hearts that they may know you and trust you and love you and fight in this battle against sin. Bless us this morning, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's treats there for you if you want to take those. And after our hymn, I will go down to the nursery for those who need to or want to come down there. Okay? So let us stand and we'll sing... um, Our hymn 132.
may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them or grab one of the pew Bibles with you in front of the, on the end of your pew and turn with me to the book of Romans. This morning, as you can see from the, the bulletin, our focus is only on verses 12 and 13, but I want to read a, a little bit more than that for you as we, as we begin. Now, I want to start in verse 1 of, of Romans 8 and read... Uh, all the way through verse 17 for you this morning. So look with me at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we we come to your word, we come often unprepared and ill-equipped, blind, deaf, and dumb. By your spirit, transform us. Prepare us, speak to us, open our eyes, open our ears, open our lips. That we may see, that we may hear, that we may believe, and that we may proclaim. May your word go forth 
this morning. Speak to us this morning. Spirit, illumine us this morning. Remind us of the cross. Remind us of the victory. Remind us of what has been done. And exhort us, encourage us, equip us to fight, to battle, to live. Forgive us for our sins. Teach us to repent. And give us grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You always remember your first. Your first kiss, your first love, your first movie. And every, every preacher that I know has uncomfortable emotions when they think back to their first sermon. It is a, a time of inexperience mixed with passion and youthful bravado that is a very dangerous cocktail when you put that in front of a microphone and stand them in front of a church and say, preach. Let's just say that the first sermon is rarely, if ever, a world-changing one. I remember my my first sermon well. I was asked to, to preach on a Sunday morning in my home church and had free reign from the pastor over what passage I would preach and what I would preach on and how long I would preach. And so I decided on Romans 8. Again, youthful inexperience, youthful bravado, not knowing any better. I, I preached on actually these same two verses that I plan to preach to you this morning. And and while I know that none of you were there those, that Sunday morning 15 years ago, I'm hoping, by God's grace, to redeem that sermon this morning. Regardless, let me, let me first begin by pointing you to a, a preacher much more eloquent than I ever could be, uh, one who, who, spent, who, who not only preached this passage, these two verses, but wrote a very insightful, a powerful book on these two verses, uh, John Owen. He was an English Puritan in the 1600s, and he wrote a, an 86-page book called The Mortification of Sin. Mortification being an old English word for death. How we put sin to death. And I, I read it this week. It is an encouraging book. I, I cannot recommend it to you enough. Go and read it this week. 86 pages. It won't take you long at all. But in this book, he, he expounds Romans 8.13, and he applies these verses to the life of the believer. And probably the most famous line from this small book is where Owen encourages the Christian. And he says to the Christian, he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. As you can see from our sermon title, this is where we are headed. This is what the, the passage, this is the exhortation that drives these two verses before you this morning. You see, this may surprise you, and, and maybe you were a little caught off guard by the children's story this morning, but the Christian life is a violent life. It is a life of warfare and a life of death. And this violence is not directed outwardly, but inwardly. This is not directed towards other people, not towards believers or unbelievers, but towards ourselves. You, Christian, you, brother, sister, you are called to wage war against yourself and against your sin and against your flesh. And in this war, make no mistake about it, it is kill or be killed. You will either kill your sin or it will surely 
kill you. That's what I want you to see this morning. That every day, you are in a fight for your very life. I want you to see why this war matters and and what this war looks like and how it is fought and with what weapons and strength you must rely. So we'll begin first by why this war matters. You see, we cannot tear these these verses out of context, but I, I read them to you, including what we looked at in the last couple of weeks, as well as what's ahead, intentionally. Because it would be easy for us to just zero in and sort of rip verses 12 and 13 out of their context of Romans 8 and plaster them on the walls and say, you must do this and you must put sin to death and you must wage this war. And we could get into all of the ways that we do this and all of the, the, the methods and the practices and what this looks like in your life. But at the end of the day, this would be a very legalistic, do this, do better, fix this, stop that sermon. And that is not what Paul has in mind here. He very much, uh, he, he, he works in the context from where he was, where we were last week, as well as what's ahead. Last week, if you were here with us, I, I told you that there are two types of people in the world. That there are those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. And Paul tells us that those in the flesh do not submit to God's law. They are hostile to Him. They are unable to obey God at all. But those of the Spirit, those who believe in Jesus, those who rest in His finished work, are not of the flesh, but have life in Christ and have hope in the future resurrection because the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells within you. And as Paul writes, as as God promises, that Spirit will give life to your mortal body. And then following these two verses, Paul moves more deeper into our identity when he says all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That we've been given a spirit not of slavery to fall back into into fear, but a spirit of adoption that we can come to God and say, you are my father and I am your son. And he fleshes out these blessings of being children, that if we are children, if we are sons and daughters of God, then we are heirs to the throne, co-heirs with Christ. See, you you cannot even begin to understand or to, to begin to apply verses 12 and 13 without first understanding and living in light of what comes immediately before and immediately after. You cannot wage this war against sin until you first have life in Christ through faith, and have adoption as sons and daughters through the Spirit. And you can see this by by the way that that Paul addresses the church in verse 12. He calls them brothers. And he knows that he's, we we know when he, he says brothers, we know that he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the family of God. You see, Paul is not one of those guys that just calls everyone brother. He is, he is not a, a Hulk Hogan prequel here. Like he, he, He calls people brothers because they are his brothers. When he uses this this term, when he uses this familial language, he is speaking to the family of Christ, to believers. And in that same sense, Paul doesn't use this word often, but he uses it in almost all of his letters. And whenever he uses that word, brothers, 
it is very much both a term of endearment and a term of emphasis. This is Paul pleading, exhorting, encouraging the believer to hear what he's about to say. This is his way of holding out his arms, loving the church, and saying, if you hear nothing else, believers, if you hear nothing else, brothers, hear this. See, I believe that this context helps us understand why this war against sin matters so much. Because it raises the necessary question. If Paul is speaking to the believer here, which we believe that he is, what does he mean by the first part of verse 13? He says, if you live according to the flesh, if you, speaking to believer, if you, Christian, live according to the flesh, you will die. We would say, well, Paul, you just told us in verse 9 that we are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, because we have Christ. And now you're telling us that it's possible for us who are of the Spirit to live according to the flesh, and that if we do that, we die? Does that mean that we would lose our salvation? As I said, it raises a necessary question, doesn't it? Let me, let me first answer this, this question by, by saying that I do not believe that Paul is saying that, that, a, that to a believer, as a believer, it is possible to lose your salvation. There are plenty of other passages, passages in Scripture that point to the security of salvation that we have in Christ. For example, John 10, Jesus says of his people, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, once you were in his hand as a believer, it is impossible to ever slip through the cracks. It is impossible to be ripped out of his hand. Because you were there and you were secure forever. But what Paul is addressing here is this life of war against sin is the result of being justified by faith in Christ. And it is also evidence that you have in fact been justified. When you place faith in Christ, you are transformed. You are given new life. And one of the key identifying markers of this life is waging war on sin, turning from it, repenting of it, and yes, even putting it to death within you. You see, this war that you are called to engage in is God's way of showing you that you are in fact declared righteous in His sight and that His Spirit does dwell within you, and that He is working in and through you to make you holy, to make you what He has already declared you to be, righteous. But, if you are not fighting this war, if you are not putting sin to death in your life, if you are embracing sin rather than fighting against it, then there is no compelling reason for you to think that you are united to Christ by faith. Let me, let me just say that again. Because I need this to sink in. If you are not fighting sin, if you are not putting sin to death in your life, there is no compelling reason for you to think that you are saved. I'm not saying that if you sin, then you're not a believer. Don't don't hear that. Every believer, every human being sins. We, we, 
struggle with it. It is a burden we carry. We, we fight. We resist. We repent. We fail. But if your life is not marked by the battle, by the fight, by the struggle, if, it, if this warfare is foreign to you, then what evidence do you have to show that you do in fact have faith? What evidence is there that you can point to to say, I am a believer? Do you see why this war matters now? I mean, it, it is a serious problem that so many of us who claim Christ as Savior have little to no regard for these two verses. Instead, we live in our sin. And not unknowingly, we know what we're doing is wrong. We know that God's law condemns them. We know that God's law says, do not do this. And in that very same breath we claim, but God will forgive me. That's what grace is for. John Owen in his his book writes this. He says, "The, the root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. So let me unpuritanize that language. What what he's saying is the the base cause of a a Christian who lives in sin without putting it to death is being able to digest sin and it not give you heartburn afterwards. He continues, he says, when a man has so imagined an apprehension of grace and mercy as to be able to swallow and digest daily sins without bitterness, that man is at the very brink of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Neither is there a greater evidence of a false and rotten heart in the world than to walk in such a condition. To use the blood of Christ, which is given to cleanse us, to use the exaltation of Christ, which is to give us repentance, to use the doctrine of grace, which teaches us to deny all ungodliness in order to support sin, is a rebellion that in the end will break the bone. Christian, your involvement in this war is not optional. Paul says that you are are not debtors to your flesh, to your sin. You don't owe your sin anything. It has been trying to kill you since the day you were born. You are not to live in sin. You must not embrace it as your friend, for I assure you, it is not. It will, it will kill you, it will break your bones, and it will destroy you. This war is a matter of life and death. Take it seriously. So now that you see why this war matters, let me show you what this war looks like. Because you might at this point ask, how do I fight? How do I wage war against my sin? And if you're asking those questions, good. Let's look at verse 13 together, and and let me ask a few questions from it. Look there at verse 13. Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So three questions that pop up immediately from from this verse. First, what are the deeds of the body? Paul says we must put to death the deeds of the body. Well, what's he talking about here? And I think the, the easiest way to explain it, It's gardening season, so let's use a gardening analogy. 
and really more specifically, rather than just gardening in general, let's get more specific in talking about weeding your garden, which I'm sure everyone here loves doing. A weed does not begin at the surface of your garden, does it? They begin down deep. They begin underneath the soil. They begin with a root. And unless you have some sort of special weed detection ability that I am unaware of, you cannot know that a weed is in your garden until it breaks through the surface and you see leaves. And so there it springs up from the soil and it shows itself and you say, Aha, I see you. And you pull it out. Sin does the same thing. You do not see it until it comes out into the surface, into the light, until those first little leaves come out. And it pops out onto the surface. It reveals itself through an external, outward action. The root is down deep in your heart. And just like those weeds in your garden bed, you don't know that they're there. Or rather, you do know that they're there. You just don't know where they are. But once it shows itself, once it comes and breaks through the surface, like a weed, you can reach in and pluck it out. And see, when Paul uses this term, deeds of the body, he is, he is referring, the Greek word is praxis. He is referring to outward action, not internal thoughts, not sinful emotions or feelings, not, not, not what, we, what goes on in here, but he is referring to outward, external deeds. He's talking about something that you practically do. And he, Paul, in other letters, like, for example, Galatians 5, gives lists of what these actions are. He says there in Galatians 5, Now the work of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Do you see how all of these that he lists here are outwardly visible actions? Yes, they begin inside. But you see them visibly, physically, outwardly. And so what Paul is saying here is, is he's saying, what he's not saying is to stop desiring these things. He's not telling you to stop being tempted. Because who could stop that? What power over that do you have? But what he is saying is, stop doing this. Which I, I, hope, I hope brings you some comfort here. At least it brings me comfort here. Because if Paul is saying, fix your heart, I'm in trouble. I can't do that. It is beyond my pay grade. It is beyond my power, beyond my scope. I can't reach that far, much less can I wage war there. But I can wage war, and I can control, and I can fight, and I can resist with my actions. I can, to a manner of degree, I can control what I do. I can fix what I do, even if I can't fix why I do it. So that's the first question. What, what are the deeds of the body, deeds of the flesh? Second question, what does it mean to put those deeds to the death? What does it mean to, to put these deeds of the body to death? Let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean... To completely destroy sin in your life. You can't do it. It won't be done in this lifetime. 
And if you are placing this burden on yourself and saying, I have to rid myself of all sin today, you are in a losing battle already, my friend. Putting to death the deeds of the body does not mean completely destroying all sin in your life. Not yet. can't be done. It does not mean that you hide sin. Bury it somewhere deep. Can you imagine the foolishness if you walk to your neighbor's garden and notice, wow, you have no weeds in your garden. And they said, oh yeah, that's just because every time they pop up, I just cover them with more dirt. That doesn't fix anything. And so putting, putting the death, the deeds of the body does not mean hiding or covering up our sin because this only leads to hypocrisy. Pretending like it's never there even when it's riddled with it. It does not mean that you divert sin. We're not trading sins out here. It is a foolish person to say, I finally got rid of this sin and now I embraced this one. I mean, would you celebrate an addict who is finally sober only to pick up gambling? It doesn't work. Putting to death the deeds of the body does not mean to conquer sin occasionally. It doesn't mean to conquer sin occasionally. And this is the big one, at least least for me. You fight sin one day a week, and you're in a losing battle. If if, If all of your attention in fighting sin is only on Sunday mornings, or only on Mondays, or only on Thursdays, and you only engage in this battle for that single day of the week, and you are losing. And yet it's so easy to convince yourself that you're still fighting. You see, Christian, sin will always be a part of your life in this world. It will always be there. It will be there every day for the rest of your days. It is always active and it is always abiding within you. And because of this, this call to wage this war is a daily call. You must fight this daily. Not occasionally. Not when you're feeling good. Not when you're feeling close to God. Not not when you're struggling. Daily. So that's what it does not mean. And if we continue our, our gardening analogy, let me, let me tell you what it means. It means to, to simply pull out the weeds whenever they appear. That's what putting to death the deeds of the body means. If sin begins from a root, a root deep within your heart, you cannot weed your garden by diving in and finding every trace of sin root and tearing it out. But what you can do is that whenever that root grows, it shows the first leaf. It begins to, to show its leaves in your life. When you can start to see the weed on the surface, you can pull it out. You kill it right then right there and so here's what this looks like for you every day you will be faced with sin rising up out of your heart little weeds showing their tiny little leaves every single day in a thousand different places in your life and your role in this fight is to immediately put it to death to kill that weed before it takes over You are to cut off this blood flow. You are to pinch its air pipe. You are to cut off its head by any means possible. You, believer, must kill it. And you might be sitting here thinking, that just seems a little extreme. 
I mean, all this talk about killing and warfare, it's just, it's just too much for my taste, Pastor. And if that's you, I, I get it, but have you forgotten the Sermon on the Mount? Have you forgotten the very words of Jesus as he encouraged his followers? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your left eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And then he says, for it is better to enter into the kingdom of God maimed and crippled than for the whole body to be cast into hell. I don't think it's extreme at all. I think it's that serious and that severe that we treat it this extremely. You see, I'm not, I'm not being extreme to get your attention or to, to draw a crowd. I'm not exaggerating here for the, for the sake of emphasis. I'm simply telling you what Jesus tells you and what Paul tells you. Put the outward deeds of sin in your life to death. Kill them before they kill you. Which leads to our last question, and probably the one you're waiting for. How do I do that? How do I put to death the deeds of the body? And Paul tells us, doesn't he? He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then the follow-up question is, well, what does by the Spirit mean? I think first we have to begin here with, understanding the Spirit is the only sufficient means for this warfare. You can and likely already have tried to fight sin on your own. I'm willing to to bet on it. You've done this. I've done this. You've tried safeguards and boundaries, self-control, self-help, discipline, checklist, accountability. You name it. You've done it. And none of it worked. Because only by the Spirit can you put these deeds of the body to death. Again, Owen continues in his book. He says, Men are grieved by the guilt of a sin that has prevailed over them. They instantly promise to themselves and God that they will sin no more. They watch over themselves. They pray for a season until this heat waxes cold and the sense of sin is worn off. And so mortification, putting to death the deeds of the body, it fades also. And sin returns to its former domination. Duties are excellent food for an unhealthy soul, but they are no medicine for a sick soul. He that turns his meat into his medicine must expect no great operation. Spiritually sick men cannot sweat out their distemper with working. But this is the way of men who deceive their own souls. You need the Spirit. Just as when you're sick, you need medicine. So what does the Spirit do to help us fight this battle? Let me just quickly give you four, four ways, four things that I, I see the Spirit doing in us. First, He causes grace to abound in our heart. He causes grace to abound in our heart. One of the, the books that I am fond of and, and go back to often is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you haven't read it, go read it. It is a great picture and illustration and imagery of the Christian life. It's worth your read. But in, in Pilgrim's Progress, 
we find the, the main character, Christian, inside the house of the interpreter, who's showing him all these things, helping prepare him for the journey ahead on his way to the celestial city. And it says, The interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large room that was full of dust because it was never swept. And after he had reviewed it a little while, the interpreter called for a man to come and sweep. And now when he began to sweep, the dust began to fly about the room so much and and was so thick that Christian almost choked. And then said the interpreter to a woman nearby, Bring water and sprinkle it. Sprinkle the room. When she had done as requested, it was swept and cleansed very pleasantly. Christian asked, What does this mean? And the interpreter answered, This room is the heart of a man that has never been sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. The first man that began to sweep is the law. The woman that brought the water is the spirit and the gospel. As soon as the first man began to sweep, dust filled the room so thickly that it could not be cleansed and you almost choked on it. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, actually revives, increases, and adds strength to it. Even though the law uncovers and forbids sin, it is powerless to conquer or subdue it at all. Then you saw the woman sprinkle the room with water, after which it was pleasantly cleansed. This is to show you the way in which the gospel comes into your heart by the Spirit with its sweet and precious influences. You saw the damsel, the woman, clear the dust from the room by sprinkling the floor with water. This shows how sin is vanquished and subdued and the soul made clean through faith and consequently fit for the King of glory to inhabit. Christian, the Spirit does this work in your heart. When you try to do it on your own power, you are that first man sweeping the dust-filled room on your own, kicking it up, causing you to choke on it, causing the sin to increase and get stronger. And yet the Spirit causes grace to abound, coming to you and sprinkling water into that room so that sin may be cleansed, that it may be fought, that it may be defeated. Trust the Spirit. Rest in His grace. Ask Him for more of it. He causes grace to abound. Second, He is the fire that burns up the root of sin. He is the fire that burns up the root of sin. As as we've said already, you cannot pull up the roots of sin within your heart. And you are not commanded to. That's a good thing for you to, to grab hold of. You are not commanded to remove the root of sin within you. Because you can't. It is beyond your ability. Your role, believer, is to kill the weed of sin as soon as you see it and not let it grow through outward action. But the Spirit, over time, His role is to burn up those roots deep within you so that the weeds stop growing altogether. You see, as you daily fight sin, as you daily put sin to death, sin is habitually weakened in you, it is made weaker. By the Spirit. And I bet if I asked you, just consider your past for a moment. Think of sins that, that once dominated your life. And yet today, they are scarce and they rarely pop up. This is the Spirit's work within you. It is, it is proof that He is there and that He is working. 
And as you are putting the outward deeds to death, He is burning the root up within you with a holy fire that no sinful weed can withstand. You've seen it, haven't you? He is the fire that burns up the root of sin. Third, He continuously brings the cross of Christ into your heart and mind. He continuously brings the cross of Christ into your heart and mind. Legend has it that Martin Luther was once asked by a member of his church on a Sunday morning, Pastor, why do you preach the gospel to us every week? And Luther graciously responded, he said, because you forget it every week. Christian, you will never outgrow your need of the gospel, ever. You will never reach a point in your life where you need to stop hearing about the cross and about the empty tomb. And every week as you struggle with sin, and every week as you wage that war in in your life, and on those days that you forget, on those days that you embrace sin instead of fight against it, the Spirit comes to you and says, what has sin ever brought to you? What benefit has sin ever added to your life? It may promise pleasure, but those pleasures are fleeting, and the cost, believer, is severe. You see, the cross is our reminder of what our sin, even just one single sin, costs. And as the Spirit daily brings to your mind the cross of Christ, He is reminding you of the price of that sin. And by this reminder, believer, be encouraged to fight it. It costs your Savior everything. It is worth the fight. Fourth, finally, the Spirit gives you His weapon for war. The Spirit gives you His weapon for war. This is what I touched on with the children's story this morning. You see, in Ephesians 6, Paul famously lays out the equipment for battle that each believer is given by the Spirit. He rightly uses the imagery of a soldier preparing for war. And he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In all that passage, in all that that description and those, those imagery that Paul uses, he lists one weapon that a soldier needs. One. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. See, when the battle is raging and sin is putting up a fight against you that you feel that you cannot win, your weapon in this battle is to cling, desperately cling to the promises of God given to you in His Word. Do you feel desperate or, and on the verge of defeat? Then be reminded of Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, plans to prosper you, To give you a future and a hope. When the temptations of this world just seem too great to overcome, be reminded of 1 John 4.4. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. When fear grabs hold and brings with it worry and anxiety and doubt, remember the promise of Isaiah 41.10. 
Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And as the battle rages and peace seems so far away, remember John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Whenever sin never relents, and you just feel incapable of defeating it, like it's never going to leave you alone, remember the promise of Mark 10, 27. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Christian, you, you have a weapon with which to wage this war. Wield it. Wield it well. Wield it often. And trust the Spirit who dwells within you to bring you the victory. Loved ones, there, there is a battle taking place every day in your life. It is a battle for your very soul. Wage this war. Fight this fight. You have been given all that you need for battle in the Spirit. And do not let sin win. You see, the beauty of this battle, the great hope that we have in this battle, is that it is a battle that is already won. Sin has already been defeated, and it is in its last days. You are feeling the last kicks of a dying man. You are not fighting a losing battle, even if it feels that way sometimes. The sin that dwells within you is a conquered enemy. Your job is to live in light of the victory purchased for you at Calvary, and by the Spirit, put sin to death. As I said at the beginning, the Christian life is a violent life. This is the battle. This is the fight, and it is a fight to the death. Sin's death or yours. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, believer. Believe it. Pray with me. Father, we we confess our sins to you. We have embraced it. We have enjoyed its company we have received it as a friend where you have called us to fight against it as our enemy forgive us for this forgive us for this failure but thank you that this failure does not lead to our destruction Father help us to fight send your spirit in new and empowering ways. Comfort to encourage, to equip, to arm, to fight. Burn up the root of sin in our hearts and give us the strength and the ability and the resolve to pull sin up, to put it to death whenever it rears its ugly head. Forgive us, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we do every week, uh, in response to the preaching of God's Word, we come to the table together and take communion.
Uh, Larry is at the back. If you need the elements, just raise your hand and he will bring, bring them to you. But again, as, as we come, uh, I, as you know, we typically give an instruction here for believers and non-believers. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this table isn't for you. It is for believers, those who have placed saving faith in Christ and are, and are trusting in him. And this table reminds us of that work. And so rather than take the reminder, I'd rather you take the real thing. Take the real thing, trust in Christ, and be saved. Christian, this morning I I want to give you a moment before we come to the table to confess sins, to pray, to realize, to, to bring to your lips in the presence of your King the ways in which you've embraced sin instead of fighting against it. Paul warned the Corinthian church not to come to the table lightly but to evaluate and consider themselves before coming. And so I invite you to do that here and now. Confess your sins to your Father and receive grace. Father, your word promises us that if we confess our sins, you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in light of the confession that we have made, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Having confessed your sins, come to the table and see what those sins cost. As you come, we, we come first to the bread. And in this bread, we are reminded of the cross of Christ with a perfect, spotless, righteous Son of God who was without sin, was given your sin. And as Paul tells the Corinthian church, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in Him you might become the righteousness of God. The body of Christ broken for you. then in the cup. Christian, the day is coming when this war will end. It will not last forever. Your battle against sin will come to an end in victory. And this cup reminds us of that day. When we will drink this cup with our Savior, with our hero, who will return with a sword in his fist and will defeat all of his enemies. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. To the king. Let's sing one final hymn together before we leave this morning. It is hymn 136. Holy, holy, holy. Please stand and sing.
As we end this morning, like we do every week, we say the Great Commission together as our benediction. Church, you are called as you leave these doors.